I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Martine Saint-Victor. And I'm Isabelle Racicot, and this is Seat at the Table. And this season, Martine and I have chosen to talk about the power of the Black Lives Matter movement, the urgency of this moment, and how to move forward. And when we're talking about urgency, let's acknowledge the fact that many people have lost their jobs very quickly mm -hmm. in the last couple of months. Yes, and one of the first dominoes to have fallen in uh, in this reckoning in the media was Bon Appetit magazine. Yeah, that's right. It really started when its former editor-in-chief, Adam Hapapar, posted a, a message called Food Has Always Been Political, in which he shows a lot of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. He supports um, his black employees and black food and blah, blah, blah. And, and the employees were like... Wait, hold, <laughs> what? hold on a second. Rewind. We have pictures. Yeah, rewind selector. And then out <laughs> of that, people are like, oh, what about this photo of you in brown face? Oh, what about you and all this mistreatment of black employees? And that just opened the floodgates. And one of the ways that manifested itself is that the employees created an Excel sheet yeah. where they <laughs> ask every Condé Nast employee to fill out by gender, by age, by position, by salary, and by promotion, meaning how fast they got promoted. And so here you could see black on white, how black employees were held back, underpaid, unpromoted. And so it was a stark picture of the reality. It's not only black employees, women as well, often. So everything that we know, all the inequalities that, that we've we've known about were in front of our eyes. Yeah. And so I think it took a lot of courage. Absolutely. And these employees yeah. should be credited with what happened next, not only in food media, but in media in general. Absolutely. Bon Appetit announced recently that its new editor-in-chief was Don Davis, uh, a black woman. And it's not only that she's a black woman, by the way. She has yeah. extreme gravitas. She was at Simon & Schuster. And the new executive editor is Sonia Chopra, who's a woman of color. And for the first time, Bon Appetit will have a brand advisor. One of the blessings of being black and one of the blessings of being a black man is that your options are very limited. So you have to be number one. That was celebrity chef Marcus Samuelson. He's going to be a busy guy. Uh, not only does he have a lot of restaurants to take care of, but he's also going to be the guest editor for Bon Appetit's holiday issue. And you know what? This whole idea of having him at Bon Appetit is a really tricky position, I find. Right now, I don't know if it's politically correct to say that black is in mm -hmm. and people are going to be hired mm -hmm. to make it look good for the company. So what do you do? Do you say yes or do you say, well, no, I'm a token. I'm not going to fall into that trap. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult decision, I think. And and you and I, Isabel, have gotten offers in the past uh, few months. We had to say no to Playboy. We had to say no to Penthouse. Mm -hmm. Hustler. <laughs> those were tough. Yeah, those were tough. Sometimes we said no, sometimes we said yes. But I think every time you have to say, okay, I see what's in it for the company. What's in it for me? 
and then at one point do you actually say what's in it for the cause what's it it's it's very difficult yeah. I, but sometimes i think it's so blatant that companies don't care and it's just for them and so i'm very curious to see isabel how marcus navigates through that Renowned chef Marcus Samuelson has quite the story, Isabel. Mm-hmm. He was born in Ethiopia and adopted by Swedish parents. He became the youngest chef to receive the impressive three-star rating from the New York Times at just 24. What were you doing at 24? Not much. Not that. <laughs> he also won Top Chef Masters in 2010, Chop All-Stars in 2012. Uh, he's won the prestigious James Beard Award many times. He runs many restaurants, notably Red Rooster in Harlem, which I absolutely love yeah. whenever I can get a reservation. That's a different story. <laughs> and he does have Canadian ties. Yeah. Uh, he has um, the restaurant Marcus inside of Montreal's Four Seasons. He's a prolific author and he's host of the No Password Required show on PBS. Yes, my husband's favorite show. I know, I know. And they had, they had done an episode in Little Haiti, Miami, which was absolutely great. The show celebrates how immigrant food is woven into American culture. And more recently, he was named the very first brand ambassador for the popular food magazine Bon Appetit, Marcus Samuelson. Hello. Hey, how are you? Right. What's going I'm, on? I'm exhausted by that intro. You do so much. I just have to notice one thing. Uh-huh. When you spoke about little Haiti, mm-hmm. your bias went up. I heard the bias and heard <laughs> the excitement about little Haiti. So well, do, you have, do you have Haitian roots? Well, yes. We're both of Haitian origin. I love it. I just heard like, yes, it went up. And I have to tell you, Marcus, when I was preparing for, for, for this conversation with you, I started to feel that we were cosmic twins, you and I. And I'll tell you why. You uh, were adopted into a white family. I was adopted into a white family. Martina and I started this podcast seat at the table because we were so overwhelmed uh, with emotions after George Floyd's murder. You did the same thing with your friend, Jason Diakite, mm. who's a well-known uh, Swedish rapper who goes by uh, the name of Tim Book too. Martina and I have known each other for 25 years. You and Jason have been friends for 25 wow. years. You see where this is going. We're twins. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and I think that moments like this, we have to look for the silver lining. For me and Jason, it was like, we can't just sit this one on the sideline here as creators. And what about this moment feels different to you? That's a good question. I think it might even be too early to say it because we're living it. What gives me hope is that the people that come together the most that I look for are Obama's kids, right? The people that went to high school during, when they, they grew up with Obama as a president and Michelle as a first lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way the youth, so they were 12, 14, they may be 21, 22 right now. They're the ones that truly is gonna take this ball and move it into the next space, right? So I, I see hope there through social media, through connectivity. Yeah. Um, where I don't see hope is always among the same. They're mostly men, they mostly walk around with fear or fear monger, and they're often older. So I think that it's like that last straw holding onto that last straw versus youth positive and, and how can we work together. And, and it's, it's fascinating to me, I always think about what are these men so afraid of? 
people of color, it's not like the light switch is going to go on and we, we want any type of revenge. We just want to have a seat at the table. <laughs> we actually just want to be send our kids to normal schools uh, and have equity and an equitable environment. That's it. Yeah. You know, there's never been a question of more than that. We don't need to get first in the line. We just want to be in the line. And it's you been know? challenging times for us parents also. You know, I have many friends, black and brown who and indigenous, who've had to have the talk with their kids. I have two sons, mm -hmm. 17 and 14. They're older than your son. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was, it was a difficult conversation to have it brought me to ask my own father, who's white, you know, if he had that conversation with us. And you know what he answered me? He goes, I realized that I raised my kids as white kids. I never even thought of having that talk with them. And so I don't know if your parents, you know, raised you the same way as, as mine. And, and how equipped did you feel for, as a black parent, to handle what's going on right now with your son? I mean, we were black kids. I had white parents, but we were raised as black kids. Mm -hmm. I was raised in Sweden with days and weeks where we only spoke English at the table because my father knew that I would not live and operate in Sweden. Wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is in the 80s. He knew, like, this kid will have to do whatever his craft's going to be abroad. Hmm. You know, so there was, you know, like from... Maria Makeba, to Prince, to Michael, to Malcolm X. All the excellence yeah. was given to us by our parents through a black lens. You go through my grandmother's house, of course, we were raised in a completely white environment. Our uncles are all white, our aunties, yeah. amazing people. But when it comes to our household, our ideals, they were all through a black lens. Mm -hmm. And through a black lens, but you do have, you, you just expressed it, a mosaic in your, in your culture that's reflected at Red Rooster, for example. It's really a mix of, of, of all of, of that. I guess it's an homage to your parents and how they raise you with this rich diversity and culture. And I wonder if, you know, that love affair that you have with America, with black American culture, for example, with Harlem, and your upcoming book, The Rise, which is about black cooks in America, how do you reconcile the love for America with the fact that anti-black racism is at its most fatal right now? You know, the incredible thing with America is that it's a very young country with a horrible history, but also an incredible history. So this push and pull, this love-hate relationship you can have with the United States that everybody in the world has, right? You have the most amazing experiences very often stems from America and the most simple worst experience very often stems from yeah. America. So there's very few countries, first of all, through pop culture, the whole world is always invested in America. We, we, we watch our TV movies very often, it, it, you know, our, our films from there, our TV, our music. I always admired America for its culture and, uh, and the incredible people it's been being able to push out, although I've always had enormous amount of fear of America and its brutality. And still living in New York, living in Harlem, live, loving Harlem, loving America, I still battle those things every day. Well, do you feel that, it, it, you know, there is hope 
and it's getting a bit better in terms of, I know that we're seeing a lot of, of, of brutality right now, but at the same time, we've never seen so much solidarity in people walking down the streets. So do you feel that there's some lights that, you know, went on? Well, um, very often for me, the people I look to is very often black women. You know, you, th you think about the civil rights movement. There was a lot of black women that gathered through churches or through fundraising, through bake sales, for example, and gave to the movement. You look at Black Lives Matters that is started by three women. You look at uh, Tamika Malroy. You, uh, you look at Kimberly Jones. You even look at uh, Naomi Osaka. It's a very, the movement is everywhere. And the power for me is very often from black women. You know, it, it's it's very different energy than look at the people who are holding up those doors, let's say Republican congressmen. You know, which one, if you have two doors to open, which one would you go through? Majority would go through, of course, the energy for the black women. So the hope for me is around black women and the energy that we get through that. And those, those are all examples that I, I aspire and I admire. I'm Elena Hudgens-Lyle. And I'm Harvinder Vadva. We're the hosts of Inappropriate Questions, and we're back with season three. With some fantastic guests, we break down questions like... Is asking where are you from appropriate small talk? Is it okay to ask a co-worker how much do you make? Should you ask a polyamorous person, do you get jealous? Inappropriate Questions season three. Available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about Bon Appetit magazine for an instance. So a woman of color is the new editor-in-chief at Bon Appetit. And since the murder of George Floyd, so many industries have had moments of reckoning. And Bon Appetit was certainly the first one in media, the first of the dominoes to fall and to show, I think, what many of us uh, never realized It was a reality for many. And you know the magazine, you knew the magazine before, obviously, and this, you know, media is your industry. It's an industry you work in. What was your reaction when the whole Bon Appetit debacle happened, unfolded? When I started Marcus Samson Group, I started based on two legs. One, Claire, was food and restaurants, and one was through media. Because I do think in order to drive a popular restaurant today, you need to have a foot in both, right? So when the Condé team asked me if I can help and if I can be part of building the future, I said, uh, I'm gladly helping out because uh, push and pull comes from two ways. You can sit on the outside and push and, that's a very, and, and there's checks and balances and those are very, very important conversations to be had, right? And then you can sit on the inside and create, be part of creating that structure. So I would, Don wasn't the first. The first that we put in a very powerful position is an amazing woman, Indian-American woman, uh, Sonia Chopra. Mm -hmm. So Sonia was first. And that was a very, very important move because Sonia is amazing. She knows the landscape of American food very, very well from her work in Eater. She was also somebody that I worked with at No Passport Required. So we had a lot of trust. And uh, having the luxury to work with Dawn, it's gonna be also incredible because 
I've known Dawn for a very, very long time, and, and she has a presence about, about her, and she has a know-how in media. Now the two leaders are women of color. Now we can have a dialogue that is about quality at the table, the decision-making. And we will still make mistakes, but we're off to a good start. And, you know, we're in the middle of doing the holiday issue, the December issue right now. And uh, you will see some incredible shifts already there. But we're also going to start working on podcasts and, and uh, videos. So change takes time. Especially if it's not cosmetic change, Marcus, right? Because that's part of the reasons why people are worried about changes that we see in different businesses is that we're worried that they're going to be just cosmetics and not structural. You're absolutely right. But this is, this is real. Like, Dawn is, you can't, you can't joke with Dawn. Dawn is a force. <laughs> you know, she's fierce and force. So is Sonia. And, and so has actually all the leadership been. Um, we needed the support from, from Anna and Roger, uh, the CEO, and Anna Wintour to do this. And they gave us the full support. But the content has to speak. How do we handle the burden that comes with, you know, being chosen as a person of color to replace somebody that was, you know, white that was there in order to have progress and change. If you're healthy and a person of color, you're healthy because, you know, mental health is a big deal in our community, in all communities, mm. but specifically in our community, also coming out of this incredible, unbelievable burden that COVID has put into our communities, right? Yeah. Uh, because obviously black and brown people through uh, lack of health care and so on and, uh, are, are, are burdened by this much, much more. So if you are in a position of leadership the way you guys are, uh, the way I'm privileged to have, first of all, it's not yours forever. You have a certain uh, date, expiration date, so do the most out of it, right? And pass it on. And it's a celebration when you pass it on. It means that you've done your job powerfully, right? Yeah. Number two burden or not, um, one of the blessings of being black and one of the blessings of being a black man is that your options are very limited. So you have to be number one. So when I applied for scholarship, I didn't have to be second, I didn't have to be third, I had to be number one. And it gives you a very, very strong sense of focus. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember working in France and working in Switzerland when the other line cooks that were young kids, uh, uh, white boys, uh, was very often, very few of the times there were women there, there was never a person of color. When they complained, it was me and another woman. We never complained. And when they left, they could leave. So, so for me, I'm not saying it's good, I'm just saying it gives you clarity. You can take a challenge in many different ways. For me, I choose to look at it, it gives me clarity. Mm. And when you, you say that comment about, what were you doing at 24? Guess what I was doing at 21, 22, 23. Being focused. That's what I was doing. <laughs> Being yes. Focused. And you, you said earlier that you, you put a lot of trust in the Obama youth, the kids that grew up on, mm -hmm. under the Obama administration. And it took young black editors of color to start this type of change at Bon Appetit and in the food world in general, because there was a, like I said before, there was a domino effect. How do you give them justice? I mean, I think. Content takes time. My book, The Rise, is taken four years. And everybody's like, some people, not everybody, but some people said, oh, 
what a great timing. I said, timing? You weren't with me when I tried to sell this to the editor in <laughs> 2016. <laughs> there was no hipness around that. <laughs> you know, you don't plan on these things. You do the work that you feel it's important, right? So I said, the, for me, the, the intersection between inspire and aspire is always important, right? You know, I, that's what I've learned the most, you know? So for me, 2016, working on the rise when it wasn't a hip idea, that's in a larger scale a way to set the standard and give opportunity and give equity and, 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 a, and an environment and broadcast the incredible black excellence in American food that has been underdocumented. Mm-hmm. So this is an opportunity to present the work and go and speak to these incredible contributors. Uh, you will find them at, in, on the rise and maybe locally inspires you to find a BIPOC or a black personal uh, chef or, or, or hospitality for your company, whatever that is. That's really the idea of the rise. So I answer that that way because I can control that and that's the inspiration that we're setting. I hope corporate Canada and corporate America now goes to look in their community and, and, and connect it that way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then in the magazine world, which takes a very long time to like you work on one issue and then you work on one issue, but I think they're all linked. Like here is now, here's the rise and here's this hundred people that are part of it. Stories gotta come out of that. Trends gonna be made out of that. And that writers will be assigned to do those stories, which means now that those writers now have authorship and are documented and they can now go on and do other pieces, right? So it's about setting a table and giving people of color, the photographers that's gonna shoot it, the art director, so all of this, this people that it's behind the scene that make this, that it takes to make an issue. So that's really, there's about probably 200 people working on the December issue. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the craft people behind it, the photographers, the assistants, the, all of that they look and feel very, very different than the December issue before. Mm-hmm. But Marcus, I'm listening to you talk, and if I was one of these employees that left, you know, to protest Bon Appetit, I would want to come back and work with you guys. Do you know, are you aware of some employees call back and say, said, can we come back? Well, I think, I think it's about trust, and I think the work we do now is very, very important, but yeah. I think we have to be consistent and follow up. And um, I think we need to continue to build on that trust. And um, there's always a dialogue, I mean, for, for great content to go, and, you know, great content is very fluid. You know, well, let us put out this issue and let us put out the next issue and let us work. There's always a, a, a dialogue, you know, the magazine is, I look at the magazine as a trampoline, but around this, there are other rings, right? There's the podcast, there's the social media, there is the videos. So. That's the ocean, right? That um, we need to create a much more diverse landscape and we're working on that right now. Mm-hmm. As we're working on that and showing that worth and work, people will see, okay, there's been a change. And then of course the door is open for incredible stories. This is just the beginning and the opening of that door and we're gonna push it even more open because these stories are there, you know? like. All we want to do is to do a platform that reflects the diversity of the craftspeople, the chefs, but also the readers of America. 
and it's very diverse landscape. Mm -hmm. How much of your own experience over your lifetime of maybe discrimination, inequality, you're bringing into your new role now? I, I grew up in a very different time, you know, where discrimination was a given. So I think now it's much better when you can oppose it in a completely different time, way. You can oppose it in real time. So I grew up in a time where my sister and I we were not the only black kids in our school or on our block, probably in that town. So when I was seven years old and started school, my first six and a half, started school the very first day, I remember sitting next to my, my neighbor because we walked to school together with our parents. And then you say goodbye to your parents. And the very first day of school, the teacher picks me from the middle of the classroom to move me up up front, right? So, as a six-year-old, where, where do you go with that energy? You, you kind of like, you don't understand the word racism, but you go home and explain to my, your parents, and the next day, my mom comes to school, and it's like, a, you know, like, you don't want to bring your mom to school. That's not a good <laughs> look. <laughs> so we were raised in a time where you have to accept things, and it, this is the way it is. And it, this was the battle at home at all, because my father, you know, he worked as a geologist, and he was outside the house and outside the country and he saw the world in a completely different way than my mom, there was like, you need me to come? You know, like she would handlock the principal, you know, he would be in a handlock with my mother. Like, <laughs> it's not a pretty sight, you know, circa 1981, you don't want to be there. <laughs> so this was the stuff that we go through and we can, you know, it's like, and it's, it's subtle stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And Marcus, um, if we want to move forward, uh, everyone has a role to play, really, to get over racism as much as we can, if that's a possibility. My husband doesn't think there's a solution, and I, I'd like to think that there, there are many solutions. But that said, what role do you think you play in this movement as a chef with a lot of clout? I think it's layered, right? For, first of all, restaurants, it's about ambition and bringing people together from all aspects. So. When I see what we created and creating at Marcus Montreal, for example, it makes me super happy of bringing people with all backgrounds together. Mm -hmm. It's doing the homework, creating the spaces, having the dialogue, and doing the work through the people. So when you enter and sit down as a guest, it should just be like, oh, that was thoughtful, or that was different, and it feels warm. And it feels like there's a thought here about multi-generation, but also multiculture and so on, right? Um, isms will always be there. There's isms in different ways. There's the yeah. isms that, you know, uh, that we deal with culturally, racially, and so on. But it's about how do we minimize those isms to, and create positive change. And Marcus, our show is called Seat at the Table. What does a seat at the table mean to you? I think it's many things. First of all, uh, thank you for inviting me. I mean, this is a, an opportunity to connect with an audience and connect with you guys in a different city and different country. And that's important for us even to have these channels, right? That's not something you take for granted. So for me, uh, creating this moment, creating seat at the table, it speaks to the fire in your belly. And you, you could have complained and been angry and... No, we to were. Each other on the phone. <laughs> no. 
And it starts like that, but then you realize, what can we do? Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to be challenged constantly. You know, th the beauty about living in Harlem is that the community is always on me, and they're honest. So someone can be like, hey, can my nephew get a job? Hey, why is the chicken $28? Like, people are in your face right up here. And my wife is like, stop, he's walking home. And I said, no, 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 it's okay. You know what's worth? What's worse than this is if the, no one says anything. Yeah. So the words of silence is much worse than the, word of, the, the sound of buying. Mm -hmm. So buying is everything you, you can, you know, I learn from that. You know, and very often we're not always right, so we have to change. Mm -hmm. So that's a seat at the table when you're not right and you're realizing it and you change and you turn around black. And then you go up and say, thank you for uh, teaching me that moment. Well, I would take a seat at your table any day, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. That was Marcus Samuelson, renowned chef behind Harlem's Red Rooster restaurant and Montreal's Marcus, among many others. And you can follow him everywhere on social media at Marcus Cooks. Thank you. Thank Merci, you so Marcus. I see. Au revoir. Seat at the Table is hosted and produced by me, Martine Saint-Victor, and also by me, Isabelle Racicot. The show is also produced by Melissa Fundira, Eunice Kim, and Justin Doucet. Our mixer is Crystal Duhem. Technical work this week by Pierre Rainville and Guy Charbonneau. Our senior producer is Tina Verma. And the executive producer of CBC Podcast is Arf Nurani. You can also reach us on Facebook at CBC Seat at the Table or tweet us. And don't forget to use the hashtag SeatCBC. That's right. Until next time, au revoir. Au revoir. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.